Good morning. Glad you're with us today. It is a good day because it's the Lord's day because His family is together. And we're glad that you are with us. I uh, was at a training some years, years ago. And I took some photos of some motivational posters that they had in the lobby. I don't know about you, but I like some of these pithy statements that they have. That people have said, quote, this one was by Marcus Cato. After I'm dead, I'd rather have people ask why I have no monument than to ask why I have one. That's pretty profound, I think. No one will ever see me quit because I simply won't. If I start something, I will finish it and I will do it well. Steve Belmarsh. Harry Truman has said, I found that men and women who got to the top were those who did the jobs they had in hand with everything they had of energy and enthusiasm and hard work. And we could go on and on. I don't know how you, if you collect those types of sayings or not, but I kind of enjoy that because it does illustrate to people of success what they've done and maybe a pithy little statement that says, you can do it too. You just have to put your mind to it, you have to put your effort into it, and you have to accomplish it. And you will be successful, for the most part. Obviously, what we do is restricted by what others do as well. You know, last Sunday I told you a story about a girl named Stacy, and how she ate almost nothing but chicken nuggets for 15 years. Yeah, it's kind of unimaginable. So one day, her tongue swelled up, she had difficulty breathing, and they took her to the emergency room, and they did some stuff for her to help her out, and she was okay. But they told her, based upon her diet, that if you don't change your diet, you're going to die at a young age. She lived in a world that had plenty of food, good nutritious food, healthy food, And yet she was starving as though one was in a famine. And of course, the same thing can be true of those of us who have multiple Bibles on our shelves and never take them off to read them. If I was looking in my library and I couldn't find it, but I think many times, many people will approach their Bible study just like what's in a Gideon Bible at the local hotel. Maybe when they're traveling, maybe you have one when they could give them away at schools. That's probably where I've been received some of mine and I've just kept them. But in the back of it, or maybe in the front of it, it would have a, a reference chart, a listing of scriptures for help when and it's something that you're going through. And it would give you a couple of verses. Well, to me, that promotes what I talked about last week was a problem with what I call biblical illiteracy. Not by just by those in the world. That, unfortunately, is expected. We don't expect those people who don't attend any church service, don't care enough to be among God's people, in any fashion, uh, to know much about the Bible. There was a day when even the unchurched knew quite a bit about the Bible. But sadly, I think that also happens within the church, unfortunately. 
According to Jim Gall- George Gallup and Jim Castile, after survey, says Americans revere the Bible, but by and large they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they become a nation of biblical illiterates. George Martin went on to say in another survey, increasingly, America is biblically illiterate. Well, how did it happen? It didn't happen overnight, I guarantee you. And if you look back to Israel's history, they were called by God to be his chosen people. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And they did. By a couple of verses later, it tells us that Moses went back to them and told them the words, and they said, we'll do it. So they said yes to God. And who wouldn't? After all, he reminded them of how he brought them out of Egypt, the ten plagues, those were undermined, and how he was with them. They said, we'll do it. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people get a little antsy. Where's Moses? What's he coming down? What's happened to him? Has God done something to him? And so they go to Aaron and say, make us a golden calf. It wasn't long after they said, we will do it, we accept the covenant that God has promised, and 40 days later, they're making golden calf. Exodus 32, you'll read of that story. The history of Israel would then become a series of highs and lows, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, obedience and disobedience. The, ten, the kingdom would divide ten tribes going to the north, and they would eventually go into Assyrian captivity, never more to be heard from. But 120 to 143 years later, give or take, it happened in stages, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, would go into Babylonian captivity. The prophets of God were sent to call the people back to God to return to Him. And Hosea told them in chapter 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And if you read Hosea, chapter 4, in the context of it, because that's what we want to deal with, he says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. And then he gives a list of sins that they were guilty of because they had no knowledge of what God said. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea. Yet no one let no one find fault, let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priests. So you stumble by day. The prophet will also, also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. See, they chose. Stacy chose to eat chicken nuggets. She rejected all those good, nutritious foods. And the people of God, Israel, they rejected God's knowledge. And so he would destroy them. He would forget about them and their children. This is sad. Because I think in many ways, Hosea's words can speak to God's church today as well. It's sad considering at one time that those in churches of Christ were considered almost, if you will, walking Bibles. 
How many have heard the legend? I don't know that it really happened. I don't know if it was in the great state of Texas. Amen, Jim? It was. It was. <laughs> that there was a courtroom, and they couldn't find the Bible to swear in the witnesses. And so the judge, being familiar with those members of Church of Christ, said, Is anybody here from the Church of Christ? said, Because we can swear on them because they're walking Bibles. That would be great, to know the Word of God so well that people know, if you don't have a Bible, find someone of us. Because you know your Bible. What's your favorite book of the Bible? What's your favorite verse of the Bible? Your answers are going to be as varied as your backgrounds and experiences, your age. If you're young, you may like, you know, some of those nice little verses about Jesus, baby Jesus in a manger, being born, uh, growing up. You may like some of those nice verses. Have you going through some things, or you will go through some things, that will affect your choice? I don't really know that a person can have an all-time favorite verse of Scripture, or even a book of Scripture. Personally, I don't. I don't say I have to pray, but I just can't find one that I would say, this is it. I remember many years ago, when I was studying through Romans and reading it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Now therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, my Lord, our Lord. Uh, this is a great verse. Wow. Do you know you read some others? And you go, wow, this is great. So, when I'm studying a book, there will be times that I'll have a wow feeling almost about a verse, about that book. But when I go into another study, it's like, wow, this is great. How can you have a single verse or book of Scripture to be a favorite? When you keep reading and studying the Word of God, there are going to be more wow moments that you discover. But unfortunately, I think many people, including those in Churches of Christ, and maybe even some sitting here today, their favorite book is what one is called the Fifth Gospel. Have you heard about the Fifth Gospel? Now, it's not one of those apocryphal books. But many people have read it several times over. You may have a copy of it and just don't even realize it. So question, how many of you, and you can raise your hands, it'd be kind of fun. How many of you highlight your Bible? Mark it? You know, I will write it up and put notes in it. Typically I don't highlight it. Part of that's practical. I don't like the highlighters that bleed through the thin paper. Uh, I found one at one time. My mother gave me one for a birthday present, and it was great because it did not bleed. I don't know how it did it. I can't find them again. But uh, I don't highlight my Bible. I don't write notes in the margin. That's why I like a wide margin reference Bible, so I can write notes. The idea of the fifth gospel comes from Juan Carlos Ortiz and his book, Disciple. And what he said, that typically a person highlights only those passages of Scripture that give them maybe that wow feeling. Oh, this is good. 
The verses that maybe typically talk about God's love, His mercy, His compassion, His faithfulness. You know, John 3.16. How many have that highlighted? Yeah, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's kind of a wow verse. It jumps off the page. How about 1 John chapter 8? God is, chapter 4, verse 8. For God is love. Oh, that's great, right? Highlight that little part of that verse. It's not the whole verse, but it's part of it. That's great. Maybe in John chapter 8, if you get with somebody and they're talking, you know, things are tough. They feel like they're under the gun, under the magnifying glass. And what will they say? You who are without sin cast the first stone. Do not judge, lest you be judged. And they wear that like a badge of honor. And it's Bible. But is it the whole story? You see, for some reason, most people don't like to highlight the harder passages of Scripture. What Jesus said in John chapter, or Luke chapter 17, verse 3 and verse 5. As he talked about the cities that were, had fallen to calamity, he says, such will have you, except you repent, you shall perish. He said it twice. Who likes to highlight passages in their Bible about repentance? Because what does repentance mean? It means a change of life. It means acknowledging I am wrong and I need to change my life. And I think about Acts 2.38 when Peter was interrupted, the rest of the apostles were interrupted by those on Pentecost. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, repent. And you know what they've heard if you have listened to what Brother Jim has shared with us on Sunday night sometimes about the Hebrew language being pictorial. And the idea of the first letter, I forget what it is, it has the three fingers up going up. That's kind of a hard symbol, a hard picture. But it means to destroy, if I recall. So repentance to the Jew was, you change your way, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm taking it out a little bit of liberties with it because I've forgotten all of what he said. But you change your way and you destroy that way that it was so you can't go back to it. That's what they were Peter said, you repent. In their minds, they would go back to that Hebrew expression. We read it in New Testament Greek. They heard it in their language and they knew what the picture was. That's how strongly they needed to change their life. Go and sin no more. Who wants to do that? Not sin anymore? Yeah, we all want to, but do we highlight that? Those are the words of Jesus. You can see how Ortiz would come to the conclusion that many people highlight only those touchy feelings, those warm, fuzzy passages that, ah, I can bask in the glow of God's love. But those tougher ones, man, not so much. Last week I told you I was going to talk about what I call the Twitterization of the Bible. Twitter is a phenomenon of our modern culture. There are pluses and minuses to it. I suppose it's okay. As long as you keep it out of the president's hands, perhaps. That's a commentary he likes. He's doing well with it, I guess. Twitterization is a phenomenon, according to, uh, and I've forgotten their names from the study that they did, but it's a phenomenon permeating cultures everywhere, but especially the younger population. 
Twitter, Twitterization, like Twitter itself, is real time. You're limited to just 140 characters as to what you can put into that message. Hey, I'm eating a taco salsa. It's great food. Man, that's, who cares? I don't care what you're eating. You know, really? But people want to, you, you can put running tweets together. That's what they call them. But there's little brief statements. Maybe a video or a picture. You know, most dietitians recommend eating fewer, eating more meals, but smaller quantities for weight loss. And that's what we get in Twitter land. We get news very quickly. But what they went on to say was, in your Twitter feed, you get news in a matter of seconds. You get the headlines, but what are you missing? You get... Barack Obama's White House, and I'm paraphrasing because I didn't see the actual tweet, because it probably came out more. Barack Obama's White House wiretapped Trump Towers. What do you know about it? You know the headline? Because that's in the news this weekend. But what do you know about it? You see that and you think, oh, Trump's off on a ramp. This is crazy. You start watching the news and you realize that the Obama administration did go to a FISA court, was denied one time, but then a second approach, they got a, yes, you can do it. So, where's, where's the context? Where's what's going on? You have all sorts of grammatical errors, spelling mistakes, lack of fact-checking. You have problems with Twitter. The Twitterization of the Bible is reducing the Bible to a 140-character tweet. It's reducing it to a motivational poster in an office. It's putting it on... An article of clothing. Because that's what really I saw and I was thinking about it. Ah, I don't like that. Athletic wear. And we'll talk about that momentarily. But the danger of taking the Bible in 140 character clips or less is that there is no context. I'd like to illustrate it this way. It's an old joke. It's an old story. There's an individual who's really committed to following Jesus, doing what God wanted. But every he was so subjective, he would just open up his Bible, say, where does it fall open? Close his eyes and go right here. One day he did that and came to Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. And Judas went away and hanged himself. Oh, gosh. No, I know that's wrong. That's an error. Jesus wouldn't want me to do that, so he... Does it again? It comes to John 13, verse 27. Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. <sighs> Not a very good way to do Bible study because he's taken it out of context. That's not how to study the Bible, but it does illustrate the point of the Twitterization of Scripture or the motivational posting of Scripture or putting it on. Athletic wear or other garments. The problem is it removes it from the context. You've heard it said many times a verse taken out of context becomes a pretext. The pretext is defined as a reason given in justification of a course of action that is not the real reason. Or it's defined as a purpose or motive alleged or an appearance assumed in order to cloak the real intention or state of affairs. Sometimes it's just shoddy Bible study and Bible teaching. Probably most of the time. 
Because you have something you want to prove and you find a verse that says what you think it says and you say, here's what it says. And we've heard arguments that say, you can take the Bible and prove anything. Well, that's not totally true. Because if you keep it in context, you're going to get what the Bible says. Yeah, when you take a verse and Twitterize it, you put it on a succinct little thing. Here it is. This is what you have to do. Even repent and be baptized, each one of you, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even that can be reduced. And what are you doing? You're taking it out of its context as to what was being going on there. It may be an accurate summarization of when you present the gospel to someone of what they need to do. But you still have to keep it in context. Or you just have some verses that you're trying to proof text somebody into being baptized. And if you don't show them the reason, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man of God, approved to you by mighty works, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, even as you yourselves know. And then Peter went on with the rest of the apostles, and they proved that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One. And he said, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And we're witnesses. That's when they were pricked in the heart. Why would you tell somebody, repent and be baptized? Unless you've gotten to them that point of that they need to be pricked in the heart. So they want to change their life. Maybe you just Twitterize scripture. Using the Bible, using the verse to say what you want it to say without regard to the context is making it a pretext. I find it difficult when I'm preaching even to give a brief quote because of the danger of losing the context. But now in the next few minutes I want to go into a couple of verses and there are more that could be done with this. And we can all probably find that, but I want to turn to two of them. The first one is found in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. What could be found in Philippians chapter 4 that would be a Twitterization of Scripture? A motivational quote. Something worn on athletic wear. Verse 13. I can do all things through Him, some write it through Christ, who strengthens me. True? Yes or no? It's Bible? So, I'm a young man. I want to make the baseball, or I've made the baseball team, i made the basketball team, and it's a close game, and, you know, learned in youth group the other day that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, I can do this. I've got this game. You know, we're going to win. I feel great about myself. I feel great about our chances. You know, I'm playing hard, and you know, the baskets are just falling. I'm, I'm all-time high on my score. I got assists. You know, I'm doing it all, and we win the game. Yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is that what Jesus was talking about? Is that what Paul was talking about? No. Want to know what he was talking about? After telling them to stand firm in the Lord, in the whole context of Philippians, you keep it. But in chapter 4, he's telling them in verse 1 to stand firm. He's telling them to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always. Good times, bad times. That becomes apparent, too, as you get down to verse 13. It says, don't be anxious. God will provide. Let your request be made known to God. 
God will give you peace, verse 7. Think on the good things. Why? Then Paul goes into, but I rejoice, verse 1, but I rejoice the Lord greatly that you now at last have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh. Paul wasn't talking about sports. He was talking about contentment. How important is it to be content? Well, if you're content, you're trusting in God. Didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 20, in Matthew, you know, back it up a little bit, verse 23 of, before there, where he says, Don't trust in riches, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. He said in Matthew 26 and verse 25 and following, Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Verse 33 says, Don't be anxious. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, that the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So Paul is thinking, I've had abundance, and I've had little. God's always been there for me. I'll be content with whatever it is. You know, I think it was Jim McGuigan I heard the other day on a tape, a video I was listening to. He's talking about how would it be in heaven? You have an angel that says, I need somebody to be a world leader. Popular, powerful, you name it. Yay! And they fix one. And all the angels in heaven are clapping. They're, they're rejoicing with this brother, this angel. They said, I need another one to go down and dig ditches. Yay! They're all happy. Why? Because they're serving God. Contentment. That's what Paul's saying. If you have it on your sweatshirt, fine. But just remember, he's not talking about your athletic prowess. He's talking about being content in your circumstances. So when you strike out, be content. If you gave it your best. Okay? If you make the team, be content. You made the team. You gave it your best. Did you give it your best and you didn't make the team? Be content. Whatever circumstances you're in, be content. That's what he's talking about. Another one, and then the lesson will be yours. These two examples, I think, will serve to teach you these things. Is in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. One writer said of this verse, when he was at church camp, his friends would share verses encouraging one another. There would be a Philippians 4.13, there would be a John 3.16. Things, verses that they would share and encourage each other. He got this one, and he went back to bed, he says, wow, this is great. A powerful verse, great promise, promise of prosperity, of protection, hope for the future. Who wouldn't want that? That's a great motivational poster, and you can find it. I looked on the internet. Is that what he's talking about? The whole context would be verses 11 through 13 of this, not the entire context of the chapter, but of the verses often quoted. 
For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. For one thing, this is not a personal promise. This is a promise to the nation of Israel. We do it injustice when we, make, when we personalize it for us as an individual. We have a problem with the context when we make it apply to Christians today because it was applying to Israel of then. You see, in the first part of these verses, of this context, Israel's in Babylonian captivity. Hananiah, a prophet, a false prophet, claimed that they would be free in two years. And he takes a wooden yoke and he breaks it. And in chapter 28, um, Jeremiah says to him, Listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. See, Hananiah wasn't a prophet of God. He was a false prophet. He was telling the people what they wanted to hear to feel good about themselves. He took a wooden yoke and broke it. And Jeremiah earlier said in 28, God's made a yoke of iron. You're not going to break it. You're going into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And so in verse 29, we read of that, that they went down there. And thus says the verse 4, and again, it's hard to take it and read select passages of it, but to get the context of it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, and you will have, for its welfare, you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and in your diviners deceive you. Do not listen to them to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. He's telling them to be content and not resist his judgment. Because this isn't what he envisioned for them, but for the redeemed of the Lord, that remnant that's going to come out, the faithful of God that are going to come out of Babylonian captivity. He says, I know you're planting the plans, but the ones that he spoke these words to, who would apply to? Their children. Their grandchildren. If you were 20 years old, you're going to live 70 years in Babylonian captivity. You ain't getting out of it. You're going to be there. So when we take this verse out of context and go to verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. The plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. doesn't apply to us. And we do the Bible an injustice when we make it a motivational poster or we send it out as a tweet to our friends. And we say, this is what God says. It wasn't written to you. It was written to people long ago in Babylonian captivity to give their future generations a hope that God would not abandon them, that he would still be their God. Matthew chapter 28, as we close, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and 
heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Perfect for a tweet, right? Let's keep it in context as we close. He's already had John come, the disciples of John in chapter 11, verse 1, to see if he's the Christ or should they look for somebody else. He's defended John. He's talked about the unrepenting cities of of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon. He's told them that. And he says, All things are to be handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And I remember one time stopping just for that part of the verse, and the brother in Christ said, You need to continue on with the rest of it. So I don't think I'll forget the lesson. Take my yoke upon you. Okay, that sounds like it's going to be work. That sounds like it might be a little tough. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Oh, I mean, I've got to learn something in this. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have to have a burden. You know, a yoke is for two beasts. One on each side. And if we're carrying our yoke, we have Christ right there beside us. We keep it in context and we know it's just not... Those who are weary laden will get rest. It's, we take our, his yoke upon us. We take that commitment. And we learn from him. And we walk with him. And then the burdens are truly lifted at Calvary. Because we're walking in Christ. We're walking with him. So when the urge is there to send out a tweet about a verse that you just read, yeah, maybe you would, but remember the context. Maybe in the first tweet it should be, here's what was going on in Israel at the time, or here's what Jesus was talking about at the time, and then this verse just pops out. I think it's something we should remember, that no matter what, God's there with us. Remember that all things I can do all things through Him who strengthens me is about my contentment, not about my success on the ball court, or on the baseball field, or on the football field. It's about contentment in Christ. Twitterization of Scripture is dangerous. The fifth gospel is dangerous to us because we'll not have the knowledge of God laid upon in our hearts. We will die from lack of spiritual nutrition, even though we are living in a feastful valley with the entire Word of God at our disposal. This lesson hasn't been one to tell you the fundamentals to get into Christ, but... You've heard me, if you've been here very long, you've heard me tell them to you before. Just as they said when they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and they asked Peter and the apostles what to do, he told them to repent and be baptized. Every one of them, so that their sins might be forgiven. Burdens are lifted at Calvary because Jesus shed shed his blood in his death on the cross. And we contact the blood of Christ when we participate in the likeness of his death, so we might be raised to walk in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, come to him. Well, together we stand while we sing. Burdens are lifted to Calvary.